This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.10, Discipline and Punish. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and this is my Mirai Kissing Slager episode. And I'm Nina, and I believe the young persons would describe the way I'm feeling as shook? That sounds right. Slang is hard. (laughs) Why does it have to change so frequently? Why can't we just stick with the great slang of our youth, like tubular? We were very young for tubular. That was a little before (laughs) our time. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 145 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Scott W. and Zeon's Ghost. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This is a rough episode of Zeta. It's pretty unpleasant to watch, and it was hard for us to talk about. So before we dive into it, I want to share our appreciation for all of our listeners, our supporters, and our friends who have been chatting with us about the podcast on social media and spreading the word about Mobile Suit Breakdown. And I have a lot of these to get through, so today I'm just going to do Twitter. So thank you to all of our listeners, and special thanks to the following Twitter followers. Joe's Gunpla, DJ Dave Zero, Dad Bod Plays, Artyom R, DJ Gunpla, Lucas, Ginger Bitters, Super Good Name 97, John Saab, Ruby St. Dennis, Luketa Luketa, Doom to Flesh, Ennui On Me, Sleepmon 4, Angry Aria, Charlie Weeks, Fruitso, RV67 Michael, M Being, Dr. Christmas, Flying Grizzly, Action Awesome, Inferno Steve, G Calendar, John the Mod, Jelly Prune, Omniseed, Reserve Zeta, Generator G1, Orlor, and Jarek761. Thank you all. When we say that MSB is a listener-supported independent podcast, we don't just mean the money from our patrons. We also mean the support of every single listener who has sent us an encouraging word, shared with us some neat bit of Gundam ephemera, helped us tackle a tricky research problem, or told their nerdy friends about this little podcast we make. We do this for a living, and that's only possible because of all the support from all of you. This past weekend, we even met two total strangers who had already heard about the podcast. So I hope you've started listening, Zach and Seth, and thank you to whichever listeners out there told Zach and Seth about Mobile Suit Breakdown. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 9, A New Bond, or Atarashi Kizuna, which literally means a new bond, but not in the way you might think. And we'll have more about that later in the episode. 
This episode brings us to several of Zeta Gundam's most infamous and problematic scenes, and a question that has puzzled Gundam fans, especially Western Gundam fans, for more than 30 years. So this week, we are going to dedicate our entire research section to that question. We research the history of autism in Japan and the world, and we explore its role and intended meaning in this episode. What does it say about the character who references it? And what does it say about the writers? But first, we have the Titans News Network to remind you what happened last week. And now, a special presentation from the Titans Travel Group, Travel Agents to the Stars. Are you tired of Tahiti? Burned out on burn? Taking a break from Tokyo? Why not try slumming it in space with a vacation to the dark side of the moon? The Titans Travel Group offers an enviable selection of exclusive lunar vacation packages. Luxurious enough for an Earthnoid, but at prices that even a dirty Spacenoid could afford. Check out our most popular package, the Restless Ghosts of the One-Year War Group Tour. Teens will love visiting Kaecilia Zabi's Granada Palace. And don't forget to check out the gift shop for fine reproduction vases. Then stretch your legs in the Colony Wreckage and Mini Golf Lunar Park. Upgrade to our Shadowy Elite Package, and you can take home as many souvenirs from the wreckage as you can carry. Just imagine the jealous looks on your neighbors' faces when you tell them that your new dining table used to be a Zaku Mono-Eye. Foodies and fashionistas alike will love our walking tour of Amman's downtown shopping district. Test drive a Rolls-Royce buggy. Check out the latest styles at boutiques like Bon Boni, Onorin, and Mates. And see for yourself if it's true that a McDaniel's McMoon Burger really does taste better on the moon. Keep an eye out because you never know when you might spot a local celebrity like Mr. Wong Lee, owner of Wong Lee's Strong Tea Martial Arts Dojo and Tea House. Prefer something a little bit more adventurous? For a limited time only, Adrenaline Junkies can join one of our History in the Making tours. You'll tag along with real Titans operatives as they root out real terrorist cells in cities on the moon. Please keep in mind that this will be extremely dangerous, so children younger than six must be accompanied by a parent or guardian at all times. Don't let a few fake reports of mobile suit battles on the lunar surface or gunfights in the scrapyards deter you. This is the best time of year to visit the moon. Don't miss your chance. Lunar weather is artificial, so it is always the best time to visit the moon. Titan's Travel Group is not liable for injury or death resulting from any common space hazards, including but not limited to space madness, oxygen deprivation, gravity nostalgia, ennui, existential dread, poison gas, being lost forever in the black depths of eternity, scurvy, blindness, heightened vision, contalism, zionic delusions, being disintegrated by moody teens, becoming a sad boy, experiencing a single moment of true connection, becoming Jared's friend, new type stuff, comets of any color, and the Wibblies. And now the recap for A New Bond. Floating down a jungle river, Rekoa peers through trees and vines, spying on Federation ship movements. She hears a shout and is captured by soldiers patrolling the riverbank. One paws at her, and when she shouts, Don't touch me! Another slaps her. He is gearing up to do it again when a whip wraps around his neck and pulls him back. A man in a white suit emerges from the jungle, with the other end of the whip in one hand and a pistol in the other. 
He orders them to drop their weapons and run. Once they've gone, he introduces himself to Rekoa. He's Kai Shiden, a freelance journalist. They return to Rekoa's raft and continue to observe the ships leaving the area. Kai has intelligence that Jaburo has moved. There is a new Federation base, but they have no way of finding it. Even if they did, they wouldn't be able to alert Ayug forces, who will attack Jaburo any day now. Their only option is to sneak into Jaburo and use some of the Federation's own communications equipment to send a message. Kakrakan and his men continue at their listening post, and Jamaican continues to struggle with resupply. The station commander at Granada tells him they have no supplies to give. The staff office on Earth is neglecting them. He accuses them of being Ayug sympathizers and orders the Alexandria and the Bosnia to be ready to leave in 30 minutes. Anaheim has offered to resupply them, and they no longer need to wait on the local administration. On the floor of his room, Camille sits working on Haro, examining its ten-year-old chips while it continues to call him Amaro. Emma stops by. Didn't you hear the assembly call? Of course, but I'm not with the military yet. Emma steps up and slaps him hard across the face. You're a pilot. This is the military. Come on. They are running by, late, when Beckoner, Quattro, and Wang Li arrive in a car. Brat, stop right there, Li yells at Camille, before slapping him so hard that he falls to the ground. As Camille starts to crawl away, he kicks Camille in the side. Who are you? Why are you doing this? What right do you have to attack me? Camille asks, unable to understand why this is happening. Li continues to beat him and berate him, accusing him of childishness, laziness, of being an arrogant new type and a spoiled brat. Emma and Beckoner go to intervene, but Quattro puts out an arm to stop them, and all three of them leave. Camille attempts to fight back, but Lee is bigger and stronger, a grown man, and clearly has some fighting experience. Camille is knocked to the ground again. Incredulous at so much violence over just being late, he continues to argue. He was working on Haro's data chips, which might have valuable information from the one-year war. Why won't you just apologize and do your job, Lee shouts as he kicks Camille in the head and stomach, knocking him unconscious. Camille wakes in a locker room, with several pilots preparing for a mission to Granada. Camille bristles on seeing Quattro and Emma. It was unfair of you all to leave me to be beaten for no reason. But he gets no sympathy from either of them. After all, that's the way the military works. Wang Li may not be military himself, but he's a major investor in Ayug and very important to their efforts. It is time for Camille to prepare for the Granada mission, but he refuses to go. Emma slaps him again and tries to make him feel obligated, reminding him that he didn't make it this far or survive this long without the help of others, especially the Argama crew. But he turns it around. They would not have made it this far without him, either. Emma insists that Lee beat Camille for his own good, that Camille's carelessness and arrogance could get him killed, but with all his promise, he needs to survive. Camille plays this off, insisting that he's nobody special, just an autistic child. But Emma loses her patience again. He can't just classify people to suit himself. Startled, Camille drops Haro, and for the first time, Haro calls out Camille's name instead of Amaro's. In the hangar, Quattro briefs Apoli and Roberto on their mission. They will test a new mobile suit, the gold-colored Hyakushiki, and support Granada's forces. Camille launches soon after, with Haro accompanying him. In Granada, Jamaican meets with an Anaheim Electronics representative at their facility. Basque has ordered that the Titans take control of the facility, but cause as little damage as possible in doing so. Jamaican's forces make a show of strength. The threatening presence of their mobile suits looms behind him. As he mentions, they will be foregoing the mandatory inspection. 
The Anaheim representative seems unfazed and says he has been authorized to offer them Anaheim's services free of charge for today. Federation forces spot the Argama's mobile suits entering Granada, but Jamaican was right. At least some of them are AUG sympathizers and are part of the operation. Local AUG supporters and the group of mobile suits descend on and capture a new ship, quickly taking out its hijacks and capturing the loyal Federation forces. The battle becomes a firefight, shots zipping past as soldiers move hall by hall to secure the area. With its mobile suits away, this is the perfect moment for Kakrakon's forces to attack the Argama. Camille senses that something is wrong and tries to tell Quattro, but Quattro accuses him of being lazy. Their mission in Granada is not yet complete. Before Camille can argue, they are forced to hit the floor to dodge fire. It is not until the battle is over that Camille can convince Quattro. The Argama is definitely under attack, and Quattro sends him back to defend their ship. Emma launches in the Red Rick Diaz, but has only gyms for support, and Kakrakon is implacable, bent on vengeance against Emma the traitor. Camille arrives just in time, and Kakrakon is forced to retreat. Emma begins to scold Camille for returning before his mission is complete. He couldn't possibly have had time to respond to their distress signals, but he explains that it was as if he heard her voice calling for help, and Quattro ordered him to go. Emma thanks him, and it looks as if they just might kiss before they are interrupted by the arrival of the reinforcements, and they all return to the Argama. This was, for us, a particularly difficult episode to watch. And a particularly interesting one. We have a lot to say about it. It took us one and a half hours to get through half of the episode. I have six pages of notes. The elephant in the room for this episode is the protracted abuse of Camille during the middle of the first half of the episode. Yeah, it all happens before the mid-episode break. This is a crucial scene, I think, for understanding where Zeta is coming from and what Zeta is saying. It says a lot about Camille and the world he operates in and the strictures that are placed on him. It says a lot about the people around him, Quattro, Emma, Beckner, about Ayug. And so it's very important. It's also very unpleasant. It was very hard to watch and it's going to be difficult to talk about. So we're going to do things a little bit differently for our discussion today. We are going to sequester all discussion about Camille and the Camille stuff in this episode. We are going to push that into a separate section at the end of our discussion. We're going to talk about everything else first. I'd also just like to say when we get to that section, if we sound calm, we're really not. We always do some preliminary discussion, kind of to give each other an idea of what we're thinking about, give the other person a chance to think about what we've said. We both got very emotional. I teared up and got angry. <laughs> <laughs> For the purposes of clearly conveying our ideas, we're both trying not to do that when we have these discussions on recording. It turns out crying voice uh, doesn't sound super good on the microphone. So... This is us putting a lot of effort into being calm and also having taken like a six hour break <laughs> between <laughs> watching the episode and talking about it. Don't think we're cold hearted. We're just trying to be calm to talk about our thoughts. The rage simmers within and you're probably going to hear it come to the surface a little bit. Don't worry. We're not mad at you. <laughs> we're just mad. Unless Tomino is listening, in which case we are mad at you. The other thing we need to talk about separately is Camille's infamous 
totally out of the blue description of himself as an autistic child. That is the Japanese translation. He does say the Japanese word for autism there, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us in context, and there's nothing else in the show that helps us to understand it. We'd like to wait to talk about that until we've had an opportunity to do some research. Our speculation about that is not we think terribly relevant at this point. We'd rather know a little bit about what we're talking about before we discuss that scene. So any discussion of Camille's description of himself as autistic is going to wait until the research portion. Okay. The one bright spot for me in this whole episode... Kai's back! Kai! He grew up handsome. He looks so good. I did notice, however, he has a little bit of an underbite. And I had actually mentioned to Tom on some other episode, some random Titan guy, you see him in profile, and he also has an underbite. I'm like, gosh, lots of underbites on these dudes. Yeah, I think some of the other people have them too. It makes them look more masculine, I guess. A little tougher. It looks like you're sticking your chin out. Mm. A little Popeye kind of look. I'm deeply amused by both of their outfits. Jungle Explorer Rekoa. Yeah, Rekoa in her hat and socks and shorts, the whole getup. It's very colonial in the jungle Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of look. Yeah. And then Kai in his white, I'm going to assume linen suit, traipsing around the jungle. (laughs) Props to Kai, though. The fact that that is not just covered in mud suggests he's very... Careful and agile. <laughs> and he learned how to use a bullwhip, apparently. Yeah, we we see Rekoa doing what amounts to a float trip uh, down some river in South America. She is counting transport ships until she gets caught by some Federation guys. Yeah, I, I would assume those are Federation guards. Uh, who proceed to abuse their prisoner. One of them gropes her chest when she tells him off. Another one hits her, which is when Kai shows up and manages to put his whip around one of their necks, pulls a gun on them, and makes them run away through the jungle. And the only bit of humor in the whole episode, (laughs) he's like, run in a straight line, because he doesn't want them to try to circle around behind them. And he's like, how can we run in a straight line in the jungle? And he's like, you're allowed to go around the trees. (laughs) And then he does a little flourish with the gun, which... I don't know if you remember this. He tried to do that flourish at one point in uh, Mobile Suit Gundam. No, the gun like bursts apart. So since then, he's become a freelance journalist. Which is code for spy. I don't remember which episode it was, but when I talked about Portugal and the spy network there, I remember reading that journalist was frequently a cover for spies. Because it gives you an excuse for asking people questions about everything and getting your nose up in everyone's business. Oh, no, I'm just a journalist. I'm writing an article about... Oh, I wonder if that's what his comment about showing up at the Vatican was. Like, as a freelance journalist, I could show up anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's why it's no surprise that I'm here in the jungle. It would be equally no surprise if I showed up at the Vatican. You never know where a freelance journalist like me is going to show up. That's fair, but I liked your other explanation better. My other explanation was that this is a code phrase. This is a way of saying, I am a friend of Ayug. Because the moment he says it, Rekua relaxes a little bit and gives a little smile. Yeah, and it's a reaction that makes more sense for recognizing a code phrase than just appreciating a joke. Yeah. 
And we get a bit of foreshadowing from them because they discuss how it seems like the Federation is moving its headquarters, that it's no longer at Jaburo, but they can't relay that information back to Ayug because they don't have access to a transmitter and the invasion is going to happen soon. They don't know when, but soon. Which begs the question, what the heck is she doing there? If she doesn't have a means to send the information that she's getting back, what is the point of her? <laughs> I mean, maybe the idea is she's supposed to do recon and link up with them once they land. Perhaps. And they're going to land at Jaburo where nothing is anymore. That seems possible, it's not a great plan. I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's okay. But whatever the plan was, the new plan is to infiltrate Jaburo. And we end the episode with them about to sneak in. Kai continues to be kind of sassy. Rekoa tells him off for being <laughs> too familiar. He addresses her as Rekoa-san and not by her title. The closing shot is really cool too because it's night or dusk. It's not super dark. Mm -hmm. But the light of this open door is shining on them through a bunch of leaves and vines. And they both look a little deer in the headlights, like they can't stop staring at it. But we don't know what has appeared in the doorway, we just know the door has opened. And that's the end of the episode. No spoiler here, but I really like what the show does with them in the next couple of episodes. I think it's really interesting from an artistic and storytelling standpoint. And I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it as we go forward. Well, it's Kai, so you know I'll love it. Yeah. Let's talk politics. Politics in this episode goes in two different directions. We get some Titans politics, and we get some very interesting Ayug politics. So let's talk Titans first. Even before that, I would like to point out, we see some Titans eating sandwiches while they work. But not burgers. Well, at least that one guy's isn't a burger. He wants it to be a burger. You can tell. Yeah. He's so disappointed that that is a McDaniel's chicken sandwich. They never said it was McDaniel's. It could You're be any right. chicken sandwich. I just assumed that that was a McDaniel's. The first political scene we get is Jamaican talking to, I think, the station commander. And I found this so interesting because he's irritated that they're not getting the supply they want. And he accuses them of being on Ayug's side, that they're not resupplying the Titans because they are, in fact, Ayug sympathizers. And she responds, we don't have supply either. Earth is neglecting us, which is like word for word an Ayug slogan, practically. <laughs> Earth is neglecting us. <laughs> we don't have supply either. We are space noids. Earth is neglecting us. <laughs> so that was a nifty bit of foreshadowing, uh, potentially, mm -hmm. for the fact that it turns out the Federation is full of Ayug sympathizers. Well, we don't know about full of, but there are Ayug sympathizers within the Federation. Yep, absolutely. Though when Jamaican accuses this woman of being an Ayug sympathizer, she does say, well, if I were an Ayug sympathizer, we would have just blown your ship up instead of allowing you to land. Right. I don't necessarily think she is. I do think Basque and to some degree Jamaican have become paranoid mm -hmm. and see Ayug sympathizers around every corner. But it is a growing movement, it seems, and they are infiltrating the military. And I think Jamaican might be coming at this from the perspective that you are either wholeheartedly supporting the Titans or you are an Ayug sympathizer. 
Whereas for this base commander, it may be more that she is not interested in supporting either side. She's not going to go out of her way to help the Titans, but that doesn't mean she's enough of an Ayug sympathizer to take active steps against them. Has Jamaican been in space long? I don't know. Because if he hasn't, then he might be used to working on Earth where everything you need is there when you need it. And so he can't understand the idea that there aren't supplies there for them. If the supplies aren't there, somebody must have interfered. It couldn't possibly be that the shipment is late or that there's not enough. He's not used to the scarcity experienced in space, potentially. That also just might be a case where he has been spending most of his recent career at Titan's bases, receiving the level of supplies and support that the Titans get. But now he is at a regular Earth Federation base, and the regular army doesn't get the same level of support. He was also directly attached to Basque before, mm, and it really does seem like Basque is the one that everybody cares about. Basque is the one that gets whatever he wants. And as long as Jamaican was at Basque's elbow, he never had to worry about support. But now Basque is somewhere else and Jamaican is having to do this on his own authority, which doesn't carry him nearly as far. And when they do eventually end up getting supplies from Anaheim, it's characterized as a gift to Basque. The Anaheim thing is a whole nother issue. So we heard Shaquatro mention Anaheim before. So he has some kind of conduit to them. I'll talk more about what I think he's up to later. (laughs) (laughs) But we know someone on his side of things, whatever that side may be, maybe Ayug, has some kind of a conduit of information to Anaheim. We've also got Anaheim here, and Jamaican mentions to one of his men, Basque wanted to take Anaheim over, that there was a plan in place to take control of Anaheim's facilities, at least on Granada. Quote, you know, nationalize them, sort of, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And he basically tells the Anaheim representative, you know, we could have taken over the facility forcefully. We could have shown up claiming an inspection with a bunch of armed guards and you would have had to let us in and we would have taken control that way. But we're not going to do that. We're going to play this very friendly. But the threat is there. The implication mm-hmm. is like we own this now. It's ours. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give you a piece of information that is going to uh, muddy the waters, unfortunately. This is not going to clarify anything for you. Anaheim is both the name of a company and the name of a location on the moon. So sometimes when people say Anaheim, they mean Anaheim Electronics, the company. Sometimes they're going to mean Anaheim, the small lunar city, which I believe is where the company is based. But it's not a company town. It's not just their employees who live there. That I don't know either. It might be. Okay, because if it's a company town, they're more interchangeable than if it's an (laughs) independent city that just happens to share the same name. I got the strong sense this is like in First Gundam, we needed another uh, war profiteer. Although the fact that it's a named company feels like it's maybe going to be more influential and longer lasting (laughs) than our previous... Rather than Bergamino. Yeah, rather than Bergamino. (laughs) Uh, And they sound like they are playing both sides against the middle. Or just playing both sides. (laughs) They're they're trying to keep a foot in each camp. They don't feel confident about who the winner of this whole thing is going to be. You know, war profiteers and military industrial companies tend to benefit from the fact of the war, not dependent on who actually wins it. 
And finally, no Jared this episode. No Jared at all. Apparently there is a problem with his Isaac. And Kakrakon keeps commenting on his absence. Where is that guy? How can he not be here at this important moment? What's wrong with Jared? Well, in Jamaican and Corpse Captain, who, by the way, has a name which I looked up. It's Gady Kinsey. So Jamaican and Corpse Captain <laughs> actually have a discussion about Jared's Isaac and how Jared is just burning up to go out there and restore his lost honor, but no amount of fighting spirit will restore a broken machine. Maybe the voice actor was sick that week? Could be. Maybe it's a comment on the Camille stuff. I think there's something there, but we'll have to wait for the Camille section to talk about that. Okay. But I believe this is the first episode of Zeta that does not have Jared in it. Part of me felt like that couldn't possibly be true, but I don't feel like going to check. <laughs> <laughs> On the other side of the board, Ayug's political situation becomes a little bit clearer in this episode. First of all, we find out that they do, in fact, have Federation collaborators, because during the raid on Granada, a bunch of people in Federation uniforms are like, Quattro's here, let's help his team out. Ayug only sends those four mobile suits, and there are a lot more people helping them once they arrive. They're wearing uniforms. But it's not clear if those are AU uniforms. We haven't seen anything like that on the argument. The blue ones? Yeah. The like kind of goofy, very 80s sci-fi, almost 70s sci-fi even. I thought they looked a little bit like police gear. Right? They do. Like the helmet looks a little like a riot helmet more than a space helmet. Are they corporate security? Are they a private army? Are they a local Granada militia? They could also be AU marines and we just haven't seen any marines on the argument. Unclear. But they've got a lot of help. But during this scene, Roberto tells Camille, and therefore the audience, that they need to spearhead this operation in order to show everyone who's really in charge of this movement. So we can tell that there's a lot of competition amongst the various anti-Earth rebel groups. And we're not clear if all of them are under the umbrella of Ayug, and this is about maintaining the primacy of the Argama, or the Quattro faction, or the Blex faction, or like, we don't know who exactly Roberto is talking about here. I suspect, since Camille specifically asked, why doesn't Granada just do this themselves, that each of the colonies probably has its own <laughs> uh, independence movement, per se, because each colony is quite different, mm -hmm. and they may not necessarily want to be under an umbrella. This actually makes some later comments very interesting. But they all have independent interests. They all have independent governments. And so I suspect that it's a matter of trying to rein the various colony governments or movements or groups, however it's organized, under the umbrella of Ayug, when Ayug has up until now perhaps not necessarily been aligned with a particular colony, or maybe only one rather than all of them, mm -hmm. or maybe it's been entirely space-based. Because they could just be ships. They could be almost nomadic. <laughs> or maybe Ayug is the umbrella organization, but it's mostly a decentralized one with each individual colony's group acting basically autonomously, but then... Blex and Quattro offer a kind of spiritual leadership. Which can happen with a lot of 
uh, independence movements, Absolutely. there's a certain amount of safety in that decentralization. It means that if some leaders get taken out, the organization is not completely crippled. Mm-hmm. It means that if some part of the group gets captured, they can't really speak to what the other parts of the group are doing. It's especially helpful if all of the different independence movements are competitive with each other, but they can all agree on this one independent central leadership body. It's reminiscent of, well, it's reminiscent of many things throughout history, but including the U.S. colonial independence movement. That's what I was thinking of when I talked about the interests of the different colonies, because it's very much like that with the states. Mm-hmm. Each of them had very different interests and didn't necessarily want to subject themselves to the interests of the others. There was just a sense that to be strong enough, they had to band together or it wasn't going to work. So the Argama is a bit like the Continental Army in that it's not necessarily tied to any particular colony. It's supported by all of them, but they each have their own independent forces. Does that make Quattro George Washington? Oh, God. (laughs) No, because Washington didn't want to be in charge. Quattro seems to want to be in charge. Quattro is just a lowly lieutenant, just a simple soldier who doesn't know any other way to make his living. That's why he never got married. George Washington was married. If you think perhaps we're reaching too far, I would point out Wong Lee himself compares the attitude of Europe towards America to the attitude of Earth towards space noise, that they are underestimating them, that they are not considering the capacity. They think of the space colonies as backwards or weak without really knowing anything about the space noids or understanding life in space. And if all of that wasn't enough, they also talk about a new battleship being funded entirely by donations, which was absolutely a thing that happened both in the American War of Independence and in the almost immediately following quasi-war between America and France. And finally, they're testing a new mobile suit. This episode actually contains three new mobile suits, although only one of them really gets any kind of focus, and that is Quattro's new mobile suit, the totally blinged out shiny gold Hyakushiki. I don't understand it. (laughs) There's so much going on with it. Why is it? (laughs) One of them claims it will help prevent friendly fire. That doesn't, I mean, maybe, yeah, sure, since there's nothing else like that on the field and obviously everyone will recognize it, but... Wouldn't it also be easier to spot and easier to target? Yes. <laughs> I will give them a little bit of credit. This is something that I noticed in the first couple of episodes, but we didn't really talk about. The fighting in those early episodes is very confused. And there are a lot of like mini scenes within the fights where somebody is confused about the identity of the person that they're fighting or think maybe they should be fighting. There's a bunch of times when... Someone has difficulty identifying whether a mobile suit is AUG or Titans or Federation. That's true. And the whole bit when Franklin is fleeing and Jared is like, oh, are they fighting among themselves? Yeah. And when Camille takes the Mark II to go try to rescue his mom from the mom cage. Titans brand mom cage. Oh. But when Camille goes to try to rescue her, Jared sees the Mark II and he goes, oh, that must be Emma returning. And it takes him a while to figure out, wait, no, that's not Emma's Mark II. At another moment, and I love this one, I think it's Jamaican is talking to one of the sensor operators on the Alexandria. 
they have stumbled upon the battle between Lila's Galbaldi force and the Ayug ships. And they're trying to figure out if the Galbaldis are on their side or not. One of the officers says, Ayug shouldn't have any Galbaldis. And I think it's Jamaican who responds, I don't want to know if they should have any Galbaldis. I want to know if they do have any Galbaldis. So this is a recurring theme in Zeta. You don't know who your enemies are. And so Quattro's new bright gold mobile suit says which side he's on. Or at least it says this is Quattro. And for now, we know which side Quattro is on. We think. I think I know. I have thoughts. <laughs> there is an in-universe explanation for the gold. It's this special coating that is supposed to make it slightly more resistant to beam weapons. I think whoever designed it was like, guys, we will sell so many of this gunpla if we make a golden mobile suit. Come up with a reason for there to be a golden mobile suit in the show. So interestingly, the Hyakushiki was originally a design for the main mobile suit for Zeta. Well, yeah, why not? But it was rejected. It didn't look quite right. I mean, it's too flashy. But I'll say this for it. It looks Gundamish. But it's not a Gundam. It's not a Gundam. What is it? It's just a mobile suit, but it looks very Gundam-like, yet not a Gundam. I was so distracted by the gold I didn't notice. <laughs> Especially in the face is where it looks most Gundam-y, because it's got the like two separate eyes, not the mono eye or the faceplate that Federation suits have, although the eyes are black, more like a Xeon mono eye. And it's got the gold coloring. It's literally gilded. So one gets the feeling, this is telling us a lot about Quattro as an identity that Char has put on, an identity like a hero, an identity more like Amuro. He's got the heroic mobile suit, but it's literally gilded. It's an image. It's a fake. I was going to say it feels more to me like part of that I'm a hot fighter ace kind of personality. Like, I'm so good and so cool that I'm the one flying around in the gilded <laughs> mobile suit. Your interpretation is deeper, certainly. <laughs> and there's something ominous looking about its face, especially the eyes. The black eyes that occasionally get flashes of green or white or red. Something kind of insectile about it. The other thing I want to point out about the Hyakushiki is actually the name. So... The name is literally Type 100. Shiki is the term for type, and then Hyaku means 100. I think there's a pun here, because Hyaku sounds really, really close to Hayaku, which means fast. And what do we know about Char? <laughs> He's the fast type. But it's not red. Gold is the new red. Maybe it's rose gold. Camille makes an observation during the firefight that Quattro seems to enjoy fighting. He likes it. He's enjoying what they're doing. And this is rather appalling to Camille. We don't often talk about or address Char's trauma, but I think it's worth pointing out, and I think we talked about this with Dr. Char, some people's reaction to certain types of trauma is to seek out excitement, that they get so used to being at that high level of adrenaline all the time that when they don't have it, they feel depressed. Like they don't feel right. The world in their entire lives starts to feel pointless, meaningless. Nothing can compare to the high of being in combat. Of being in danger. And they wouldn't necessarily tell you that they like it, 
but they don't feel right without it. They may say something like, well, I just don't know any other kind of way to be. I'm not suited for any other kind of life. That's why I never got married. But Camille's observation here does not come totally out of the blue. Watch Zeta. Pay attention to Quattro. He only ever comes alive during the fights. It's the most natural we ever see. <laughs> oh. Yeah. In that very first episode, when they call in the long-range shot from the Argama to blow a hole in the colony, you can watch him like watching that bolt of destructive power, and it's like he makes this face like, ooh. It's like the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. Are you sure we can't talk about the Hyakushiki some more? I'm sure I can come up with more things to say about it. <laughs> we have two-thirds of my notes to get through still. We get to open with just a fun culture note and then get into the horrible stuff. But you'll notice when we open on Camille's room, he's got a laundry line and his laundry drying across the room. And you might not think this is significant, but... Even now, dryers in Japan are really uncommon, or even if people have them, they don't use them very often. Almost everyone has access to at least a tiny balcony, and people hang dry, line dry their clothes. That's the most common way to dry clothes, and would certainly have been in the mid-80s as well. So this is a domestic scene. It's nice, it's peaceful, it's friendly. Camille is sitting on the floor, poking at Haro, doing computer stuff. He's behaving in a very Amuro-like fashion. We saw exactly this scene in First Gundam over and over again. And he's really immersed in it. We know he's really immersed in it because when Emma comes to check on him and to see why he's not responding to the muster call, he says, yeah, I heard it, but I'm busy. I mean, yes, he's busy, but I interpreted that more as him pushing back and saying, I didn't join the military. It's not a muster call for me. Fair point. And it begins, Emma pushes back when he says he's not in the military yet. She slaps him and she says, yes, you are. This is it. And she kind of gestures at the whole ship. <laughs> You're in it now, Camille. Which is odd because it really seemed like we were giving you a choice before and now we definitely aren't. Well, I think there never really was a choice. Only the illusion of choice. They were hoping he would come around on his own. And this is going to come up again. Because Emma will slap Camille again, but it does feel as if in the show, Emma hitting Camille is less objectionable than other people who do it. I think that's right. Not that we find it less objectionable, but that the show finds it less objectionable is what we're... Camille finds it less objectionable. The problem with a scene like this in Gundam is that Gundam very rarely shows you its cards. It very rarely says, this is what we think about this thing. We think this is bad, or we right. think this is good. Rarely does Gundam say, this is how the world should be. Usually, Gundam says, this is how the world is. We don't have an unimpeachably correct interlocutor, or even one who is right most of the time, who can tell us how the show feels about things. As much as Camille is our protagonist, we know that Camille's feelings about things are not necessarily the show's feelings about things. But yeah, Camille definitely is more okay with Emma hitting him than the other things that happen in this episode. But his reactions are different. The second time Emma hits him, which we'll talk about when we get there, but his reaction is very different. He's much more surprised. He's even, I would say, shocked 
and cowed by that in a way that he is not by this one. He likes and respects Emma. Maybe he shouldn't. Perhaps not, but I do, I do think that is the difference. Because as Emma and Camille come rushing in, Shaquatro yells at them for being late, and Wong asks Beckoner, who's the kid? Oh, this is Camille, who I heard about, your new pilot, okay? Hey, brat! With a big slap out of nowhere. So Big, hard enough to knock him down. Hard enough that he doesn't get right back up again. So it's insulting from the get-go. It's talking down to him from the get-go. Camille has never seen this man before. He doesn't know who this is. Then he kicks him while he's down. Camille is basically just like, why? What are you doing? Who are you? You're late because of that toy. Again, talking down to him, emphasizing that they think of him as a child, even as they're holding him to this military standard. This focus on childhood and responsibility in this scene, and really in all of the Camille scenes in this episode, led us to a point of some disagreement. <laughs> strong, strong feelings were had <laughs> on both sides. And that's about whether Wong and the adults are expecting Camille to behave like an adult, requiring him to behave like an adult, but treating him like a child. Or whether they're expecting him to act like a well-behaved child, they are simply okay with the idea of children in the military. If I understand Tom's position, they really switch constantly <laughs> based on what they need from him. When they need obedience, it's you're a child. When they need him to step up and do things and take on responsibility, it's you're an adult. Right. You're not allowed to ask questions. Children don't ask questions. Children just shut up. But we need you to behave like an adult, fulfill your responsibilities, do your job as a pilot, be there on time. Whereas I think, by and large, the behavior they expect from him is part of a particularly like disciplinarian, authoritarian, adult-child dynamic. They're just perfectly okay with the idea of, at the same time, subjecting a child to being in military service. Which, given the way that they were like, oh, there were kids on the white base who were your age, I think is a reasonable read of their mm -hmm. behavior. Yeah, I guess the reason I think that this is a child-adult distinction, uh, one, comes from something you said in a previous episode about how, in the Japanese conception, childhood is freedom, adulthood is responsibility. Second, when Wong is talking to him, Camille tries to justify himself. He says... I was looking at the Haro, I was looking at its data chips, it might be important, it might have important information. And Wong says, you're not an intelligence officer, are you? You're a pilot, right? It's not just do what you're told, it's do what's appropriate for your role. And your role is a pilot. That's your job. You have to do it. And then the third thing, and for me this is the most important one, is that focus on Haro during this scene, and really on Haro throughout this whole episode, because when Wong says, you're late because you were playing with that toy, what he means is, you're late because you were behaving like a child. In a way, I think the Haro represents Camille's like child soul, his child nature. And so Wong is saying, you're late because you were clinging to your childhood, weren't you? And maybe he's saying, you are late becoming an adult. You are late developing into an adult because you are clinging to that aspect of your childhood. There's a series of books I loved growing up. Uh, they're young adult fantasy novels by Tamara Pierce. The first one involves a young girl disguising herself as her twin brother so she can go learn how to become a knight. 
And so it's a school story. A lot of it is about her schooling and her training and her experience doing this. And one of the characteristics of that experience is that there is always too much work. You are given impossible tasks constantly and your teachers and everyone around you know it's impossible. And you are constantly being punished for the fact that you are not completing the impossible. And the entire purpose of it is for you to shut up, <laughs> do what you can, take the punishment, keep going. You don't complain, you just push through and you do the best you can. And I get some of those kind of vibes here, that there's no way nobody came and told Camille like, hey, we're gonna be treating you like a soldier now. <laughs> Time's up, kid. Nobody explained the rules to him. And then after the fact, you have everybody acting like a mentor, like, oh yeah, that's, that's how this works. You should have known better. Well, welcome to the club. What did you expect don't, would happen? Don't, just don't do it again. Now you know. I also got flashes of this scene from Mad Men, which maybe some of you have seen it. It's a show about largely life in the 60s and early 70s in the United States. But there's a scene at a kid's birthday party where one kid, very rambunctious, runs, doesn't watch where he's going, crashes into an adult, knocks over a drink. And this adult, who he doesn't know, smacks him. Kid's dad comes over. What's going on here? And a modern audience is like, oh, you're in trouble now. You smacked somebody else's kid. And the guy explains, oh, he knocked a drink over. And his dad smacks him. And he's like, yeah, be more careful. And it's shocking when you see it. And it was one of a whole host of moments like that. But that in particular times and places, there was this attitude that if it was for the right reasons, any adult could exercise this physical discipline over any child. And so we have Camille, who is like, who are you? I don't even know who you are or why you're the one punishing me for being late. And then we have this adult figure who takes the attitude of, well, I'm an adult. <laughs> Camille makes a series of very rational, compelling statements and asks a bunch of questions of Wong during this encounter. And Wong Lee doesn't respond to any of them because he doesn't have to, because through his exercise of violence here, he does not have to justify himself. But that's also a very particular adult-child dynamic that you see in some parent-child relationships, certainly in some teacher-child relationships, but this attitude of uh, any attempt at explanation is making excuses, and excuses are unacceptable. When you are in trouble, you are supposed to, again, shut up <laughs> and take your punishment and not do it again. And that, that any attempt to ask questions or to explain constitutes you trying to get out of the fact that you messed up. And Wong does punish him for talking back. Well, and he specifically says, why don't you stop talking and just apologize? He has this attitude of, why do you keep trying to ask questions or explain? What you're supposed to do is admit that you were wrong. <laughs> but for the characters who are outside of this situation, when they justify it later, they say things like, this is just how the army is. And he's a very important person. He's an AUG investor. And that's how the army works, right? Like, the president of Raytheon can just beat up Air Force pilots? That's a thing, right? And even if that's the way that things are in this world, in these armies, even if that is normal, that doesn't mean it's okay, and that doesn't actually absolve 
Camille's friends and comrades from having to justify it. Like, this is the way things are is not an answer. When Camille asks, why did you let that happen? Well, and, and what right do you have to beat me for being late? Yeah. What right do you have to do this? How can you resort to violence for no reason? These are all things that Camille says to Wong that Wong responds to just by beating Camille even harder. Camille's comment about how could you resort to violence for no reason does beg the question, what reasons Camille feels justify violence? <laughs> he did launch himself at Jared for saying, oh, look, it's a boy. Camille might just want any reason, any reason at all. And the last thing Camille says before he is beaten literally into unconsciousness is violence isn't right. Which we know he doesn't really believe, but he has at various points questioned people's reasons as being insufficient. Yeah, and I actually do think he does believe that violence isn't right. Look, I know that he also does violent stuff sometimes. I'm not suggesting he hasn't, and he certainly will again. But he is trapped inside of an inherently violent system. And Camille's one of the few people who is looking around and saying this whole system is messed up. And everyone around him is saying, well, this is just the way the system is. He's also been more or less trapped since he made the somewhat impulsive decision to go, right? Arguably, he's been trapped his entire life. I meant trapped in Ayug. Yeah, absolutely. Especially now his parents are both dead. He's an orphan. Where would he go? His what home would he do? was destroyed. If he could manage to sneak off of the Argama, he could try to live in Amman as a homeless kid, I guess. Yeah. He doesn't really have options. And at one point during the beating, Wong says to him, unless you do all of the things that we tell you to do, you might just find yourself thrown off the Argama. And this is a sentence that ends in an ellipsis. And at first we go, well, that wouldn't be so bad for Camille. He'd be free of all of this. But Wong Lee finishes the sentence and drifting through space. Right. Like, they'll throw you out an airlock. And execute you, essentially. Oh, hey, just like the way your dad died. Cool. So cool of Wong Lee to remind you of that. There appears to be also a perception that Camille is a new type, A, which we're pretty sure we agree with, but B, that this has made him arrogant. Wong calls him arrogant. Emma calls him arrogant. I think he's overconfident. I'm not sure arrogant is the word that I would use, but I'm much more curious about Camille's strong resistance to being called a new type. He insists up and down anytime anybody brings it up that he is not a new type. And not for nothing, he seemed a little bit of a new type fanboy when we first met him. He was really excited by the idea of all the crew of the white base being new types. He found that really exciting. He's sure that Bright, who he had, who he's enough of a fan of to have autographs from, was also a new type. Well, now that he's with the Argama, he has figured out that if he is a new type, then he is destined for a probably short, very violent life as a psychic super soldier. Wong Lee's attitude made me wonder if even within Ayug, there is a certain amount of prejudice against new types. I've also noticed... To our knowledge, there are no new types in positions of authority within Ayug. Except for Shaquatro. But do, do people know he's a new type? Is he out? <laughs> I mean, when they were using him as a new type dowsing rod, that suggested that Blex knows. And we had a little bit of a hint that maybe Beckner knew, but there's no one like an Amuro or a Lala. 
I just started to get a sense, watching all of this, Ayug is perfectly happy to use new types, but they're not necessarily representing new types' best interests. Which leads me to one of my big brainwaves for this episode is that I suspect Shaquatro is playing the long game. That he's not really on Ayug's side. And that part of his long game plan is encouraging uh, Camille to be alienated from Ayug. Hmm. When Quattro, Roberto, and Apoli are getting ready for their mission, they're discussing, like, oh, will Camille come? And Quattro says, Emma will make him come. And one of them asks, what happened? And Quattro tells them that Camille was being lazy, which to me sounds like making Camille look bad and making it harder for Camille to make friends among the other pilots. Again, creating that isolation. I'm over here making silent nodding noises. Tom was visibly shaking with anger when Emma and Beckoner moved to intercede in Camille's beating, and Quattro stops them. And there are two interpretations of this. One is he thinks this is a valuable lesson that Camille needs to learn, which is how he plays it later, that that's just how things are and Camille needs to get used to it. However, it also left Camille feeling isolated and friendless. Especially isolated from Emma, who he had been starting to get close to. It means he doesn't trust the Ayug leadership. And Camille says something during the beating that is, I think, the most interesting and ambiguous line that he has there. It's when he starts trying to fight back against Wong Li, before it turns out that Wong Li is actually a much better fighter. But he says, you're no different. There are three interpretations of that that I thought of. One possibility is he's saying, you're no different than me. Totally normal rejoinder in that situation. Second possibility, you're no different than my dad. Quite personal, wouldn't have any meaning to Wong, but he's not really talking to Wong at this point. He's talking to himself. Third possibility, and the one that I subscribe to, you're no different than the Titans. You, Ayug, are really no better than the other side. And the beating that Camille gets from Wong is significantly worse than what Jared did to him. Indeed, and this is part of why I was so angry at Emma and Beckner. Like, if you had any doubt that Emma was completely spineless in the face of authority, this should confirm that. Because she's watching a kid, 17 years old. Very young. He's very young. Someone she likes, by all appearances, brutally beaten by an adult man, when she has the ability to come to his aid, and she stops, and she lets Quattro wave her aside. She doesn't even stay to watch. She goes and hides somewhere. And this is pretty similar to what she watched happen to Bright. It's more or less exact. <laughs> but that seemed like the inciting incident that led to her defecting from the Titans to Ayug. And yet she does nothing in this scenario. Later, she justifies it. She explains to Camille why enduring this beating was for his own good. I'm not trying to excuse her behavior in any way. I would like to point out this is what she is seeing is probably very similar to her own training experience. I'm saying she's kind of brainwashed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's quite young. We don't really know what the schooling and training system is like, but we do know that the Titans are taking the best and the brightest from Earth. 
she may have gone to a military academy after she finished high school, but it could have even started for high school. She's lived this life for a long time and started pretty young. Again, I don't think that excuses her behavior, but it does explain why she thinks it's normal and why she feels a sense of frustration with Camille for not understanding, for not understanding the rules. In a way, I think Camille's questioning of the system, Camille's refusal to accept it as normal and natural probably makes her feel very uncomfortable because this is something that she has over the course of her life been forced to become accustomed to. She has been forced to reconcile herself to it. But then for Camille to come up and say, no, but this is wrong. This shouldn't happen. Challenges the whole worldview that Emma has been forced to base her life on. And not for nothing, she left the Titans what is left for her if she leaves Ayug? Welcome to the new boss, same as the old boss, is sometimes a comfort and sometimes a curse. But if that's the way it is, where can she possibly go that won't be like that? When you're in space, as compared to the Earth, you are much more reliant on other people. Because there is nowhere for you to go. If you're on the Argama, you have to follow the rules because the alternative is the airlock. Everybody wants Camille to be the next Amuro, but nobody treats him like an Amuro. And everybody wants him to be a new type for them, but then when he actually behaves like one, they don't believe him or they don't trust him. I'm a little curious when you talk about nobody treats him like an Amuro because... The defining characteristic of the situation aboard the White Base is that they were all children and were all peers. You know, Bright had a couple of years and some rank on everybody, but for the most part, it was a very egalitarian system. And the one Camille is in is not. Yeah, it absolutely isn't. So is that what you mean? Well... If they want him to be like Amaro, they need to create an environment like... <laughs> well, but nobody acknowledges his capabilities outside of piloting. Except for Astanaji. Absolutely, Astanaji does. I think he's my favorite Argama person. He's so nice. I learned a little bit of deep lore about Astanaji recently. What? Yeah, this comes thanks to Prototype Zeta in our patrons Discord. Uh, apparently, Astanaji was a student of Moss Khan. Oh. Right. So there's that connection between the scientist who treats Camille well and takes him seriously and appreciates his engineering thoughts and the scientist who treated Amuro well and liked him and appreciated his engineering intelligence. I think this episode for Camille is very much about identity and whether you determine your identity or the people around you determine an identity for you and then impose it on you. During the fight with Wong Lee, there's a moment where Wong says, like, I've heard about you. All the people have told me about you. And Camille says, that's not me. I'm not the person they say I am. I'm not like that. I interpreted Camille's line there as being specifically about being a new type. And it may very well be, but I think it still goes to that question of identity. Because later, when he wakes up from being unconscious and he is greeted by Roberto and Apoli, one of them just refers to him as new type. Like, hey, new type, welcome back to the world. Yep. But Haro goes from calling him Amaro at the beginning of the episode to calling him Camille. Haro learns his name. Haro is super important in this episode. 
And I actually have a bit of a trajectory with this. So let's talk Haro. Quattro brings Haro to Camille. When you were talking about Quattro trying to isolate Camille from Ayug, this scene really jumped into my head because this is Quattro like showing up at the hospital room with the teddy bear. This is like, hey, buddy, I brought your toy. Aren't we friends? And I think knowing that Camille won't just let it go. He says, oh, these were mass produced, marketed Haros. And if I were Camille, I would check to see if all those cartridges are still in there. But I am a suspicious sort. (laughs) Camille and Emma have a very heated discussion about personal responsibility and interdependence that ends with Emma shouting at Camille not to classify people as children or adults at his own convenience to suit himself. Because he calls himself a child. This is the, the part of the scene where he describes himself as an autistic child. And she's basically saying, you're calling yourself a child because it suits you. Because that's convenient in this moment. And the moment she says it, he drops Haro. And if you subscribe to my theory that Haro represents Camille's child soul, he's letting go. He's dropping his child nature when Emma says that. Haro, as Camille is leaving... Says, Camille, catch me, and jumps up to join him in the cockpit, which Haro never did with Amaro. This is something new and different, new Haro behavior. And Camille goes back for him. Haro saves Shaquatro and Camille from a gunshot. Haro has gotten very good at defensive maneuvers. And finally, after Camille has saved Emma, and Emma's mobile suit is too badly damaged to be piloted, she says, hey, Camille, open up your cockpit. And she comes over to him, and Haro leaves, and Camille and Emma are alone in the cockpit. Ooh. And it's framed in like a romantic tension kind of way. Oh, absolutely. Their faces are very close to each other. They're looking right at each other. She says something, and then there's a beat like, is something going to happen? And Beckner arrives. The moment is passed. But it does feel as if they are about to kiss. It feels like a very clear visual metaphor for a moment that is not part of childhood. The Haro part of Camille, the child part of Camille is giving privacy to the adolescent young adult part of Camille that is romancing this girl. (laughs) So Quattro bringing Haro to Camille and then Camille following Quattro around, having Haro in those scenes makes the relationship between Camille and Quattro feel much more like child and father or child and older brother, child and mentor figure. These are the scenes where Camille is really observing Quattro and in a way trying to model himself on Quattro, which is exactly what Quattro wants. And that's why Quattro brings him the Haro. It made me think of Lala. Who was very childlike. Yeah, you will recall, I felt she had a a sort of odd childishness about her. Maybe Quattro thinks that's important to new type development. I think Quattro thinks that's important to Quattro's control over developing new types. It's so sad when Camille lies to Astanaji. I had a cold. They gave me some medicine for it. Well, he, he cares about what people think of him. And in a way, it shows he's already starting to accept the logic that's been forced on him. Because he could say, I got beat up for no good reason. But he's accepted that no one else around him agrees with him that it was for no good reason. 
He just has to hide the hurt. I mentioned earlier that I think there might be a connection between Jared's absence in this episode and the Camille part of this story. As the rival, Jared is a kind of mirror for Camille. And we get the scene of Jamaican and Corpse Captain talking about Jared going out just after we get the scene of Quattro talking to Roberto and Apoli, wherein Quattro says, Emma will make him come. And then Gady says something very similar to Jamaican. When Jamaican asks, will Jared be able to go? Gady says, I'll make him go. But Jamaican gives us a little bit of wisdom. I, it's weird to say this about Jamaican, <laughs> but he's right here. No amount of fighting spirit, no amount of making him go is going to fix a broken machine. And there's a real danger that their attempts to discipline Camille by punishing him might, in fact, break whatever it is that allows them to make use of him. And then no amount of making him go will make him go. Some of our listeners might have seen some similarities between this episode and Mobile Suit Gundam when Amuro refused to go out in the Gundam and Bright slapped him. It's a famous scene. It's a famous episode. If you remember, that was episode 9 of Mobile Suit Gundam. This is episode 9 of Zeta Gundam. The comparisons are very strong. There are a lot of parallels between these two episodes. The Bright Slap is celebrated in the Gundam fandom to a, frankly, uncomfortable and unfortunate degree. Gross. In interviews talking about it, Tomino has occasionally made the point that there is violence that is not abuse and there is violence that is abuse. Not all corporal punishments are abusive, but some of them are. And I think this scene with Wong is meant to grab the viewer by the head and force them to watch Oh, you liked it when Bright slapped Amaro. Do you like this now? Do you like it yet? Do you like it now? And when Camille is lying on the ground, looking around for help, and his friends are nowhere to be found, the brutality, the abandonment, and the abuse is hard to deny. I think there are a lot of aspects of Zeta that take elements from Mobile Suit Gundam and force the viewer to watch them and recognize in them darker aspects. We're planning on delving into this in more detail on another episode when we have more time, but so many aspects of Zeta Gundam are an artist's reaction to and commentary on fan response to their other work. And some of that may well be a sense that the work was misinterpreted, misunderstood, and a desire to take the points from the first and make them less subtle make them more extreme, more pointed. Like, are you getting it yet? <laughs> in the argument in the ready room, at one point, Camille shouts, that was unfair. And how many of us can remember personally having done or having seen or having seen in media an idealistic young person complaining about the unfairness of anything, the world. <laughs> And some adult, and in this case it's Emma, telling him, in the military many things are unfair. And she might just as well be saying, well, life is unfair. And at one point I blurted this out, but I would sum up this episode this way. This, that acceptance of unfairness as natural and unchangeable, as opposed to the idealism of it's unfair and it shouldn't be allowed, 
That's what war does to children, forcing them into responsibility, forcing them into an acceptance of these horrible conditions and situations. This is what war does to young people. And it's not just war. This is what the adult world and all of its systems and organizations does to young people. Because young people's insistence that injustices be challenged and changed and that unfair things shouldn't happen is very inconvenient and uncomfortable for the existing power structures and for the people who have already accepted them. Now that we have talked about the episode as a whole, let's go back and talk about the name and that word, Kizuna, the one that means bond, but not quite what you think it means. So Kizuna originally referred to fetters, the rope used to bind a horse, a dog, or hunting bird to, say, a tree. It was also used to refer to bindings, shackles, restraints, and ties of obligation. It was not until recently that it came to mean a connection between two people who help and support each other. Unfortunately, the source doesn't lay out exactly when that change in meaning happened, but it does make clear that that older meaning is still very well known and very prominent. And when you watch the episode, it doesn't really seem like Camille is forming any kind of new interpersonal bonds with people. It really does feel like he is finding himself fettered in a new way. Yes, that older meaning makes much more sense in the context of what happens in the episode than the English translation. Before learning this, I did feel like the episode name didn't fit what was here. I kept looking for like, oh, what is the new relationship? What is the new bond that is forming here? But no. Do you think Camille is more of a horse or more of a hunting bird? Definitely hunting bird. I think if Quattro had his druthers, he would put a little hood over Camille's <laughs> head whenever they're not fighting. Quiet, quiet now, Camille. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think maybe he's a horse and he has blinders on so that he can only see the Mark II? Also possible. In one of his arguments in this episode, Camille is talking to Emma and describes himself as an autistic child. There is a lot to unpack there. <laughs> what does he mean when he says that? Essentially, what we are trying to figure out is what was the 1985 understanding of autism in Japan? And we should be certain to clarify because this comes up every time this comes up. The word he uses, Jiheisho, is the Japanese word for autism. That is the only thing it means, and that is the only word for autism. So there's no ambiguity in the translation here. It's not like somebody injected this meaning into it. He said autism. He meant autism. The Jihei portion can, in a medical diagnostic context, also refer to social withdrawal behavior in other mental health situations, but then it would just be Jihei without the shoal. The shoal makes it autism specific. And the kanji for it are pretty interesting because it's inside yourself withdrawing illness. Self-closed illness. Before we talk about autism, autism history, and what Camille means when he calls himself an autistic child, let's first just talk briefly about what 
is autism or autism spectrum disorder. And for this, I'm going to pretty much be reading off of the National Institute of Mental Health's website and their page on autism spectrum disorder. So autism spectrum disorder or ASD is a developmental disorder affecting communication and behavior. It's a developmental disorder and symptoms usually appear within the first couple of years of life. The DSM-5 provides the following diagnostic criteria. Difficulty with communication and interaction with other people, restricted interests and repetitive behaviors, and symptoms that hurt the person's ability to function properly in school, work, and other areas of life. It is, however, a spectrum disorder, which means that there is a huge variation in the type and severity of the symptoms that people experience. If you're curious about the kinds of symptoms included within the autism spectrum, we will include a link in the show notes to the National Institute of Mental Health's full list. The history of the term is pretty interesting because although the word autism had been used previously to refer to social withdrawal, it wasn't used in the sense that we use it now until 1943 by Dr. Leo Kanner in his paper, Autistic Disturbances of Affective Contact, which described 11 cases of what would come to be called autism and which he referred to as early infantile autism. Kanner described the condition as one a child was born with, and considered the core of it to be an inability to form typical, quote-unquote, affective contact with people, which is to say, emotionally-based connection and interaction hmm. with other people. Yeah, your affect is the way in which you display emotion. So when you hear someone talking about quattro and you hear the term blunted affect, what that means is he doesn't display emotion as vigorously as one would expect him to under the circumstances. For a long time, autism was considered to be related to childhood schizophrenia or psychopathy. Uh, interestingly, despite the fact that Kanner considered it to be something that a person was born with, in Japan, it wasn't until the 1960s that it began to be treated as congenital or hereditary, rather than contracted. Up until the 1980s, many people in Japan, unless they were an expert or a specialist, thought that autism was contracted, that you, you like caught autism, you became autistic because something happened to you as an infant or a child. Or just as a result of extreme stress. And unfortunately, that was not in any way limited to Japan. Asperger published his paper just one year after Kanner in 1944. But it was originally published in German and didn't become well-known in the English-speaking world until 20 or 30 years later. And the patients that Asperger was describing in his paper were much more high-functioning than the patients that Kanner was working with. I mention Asperger here because later there's an established connection. We later get autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. But they were talking about very different cases. There were a few similarities, but people really didn't consider them to be related until much later. Like late 80s later. Yes. A researcher by the name of Lorna Wing proposed autism spectrum disorder as explaining the relationship between autism and Asperger's in 1988. So at the time that Zeta was made, that connection had not yet been established. No. And the diagnostic criteria were very new. There were no diagnostic criteria for autism until the release of the DSM-3 in 1980. When Camille says he is autistic, a modern audience might think he means he's on the spectrum and look for behaviors that we associate with, you know, we say high-functioning autism or with Asperger's. But a contemporary 1985 audience wouldn't have seen it that way at all. 
Several Japanese sources I read address common misconceptions in Japanese society about autism. And one point that really muddies the waters for us is that extreme shyness, social withdrawal, being a hikikomori or a shut in,、uh, and depression are often conflated with autism in Japan. <laughs> a bunch of those terms get used interchangeably, incorrectly, but You'll see that kind of word usage there among people who are not experts or personally affected.、Mm-hmm. And because at this point, the link between Asperger's and autism, the idea of an autism spectrum, had not yet really been developed, when Camille says Chiheisho in the 1980s, if he were using it correctly, he would mean like the most extreme end. Which does make me wonder if he means more on the socially withdrawn, depressed. Like he's misusing the term, but misusing it in a way that was common at the time. I think that's very likely. So while Nina was researching autism, the history of autism, especially in Japan, my research led me to some discussions amongst Japanese fans online about this particular line, including on a message board run by the Autism Society of Japan. Oh, how cool! Yep. And so I owe a tremendous debt to them. For analyzing this line, as well as collecting quotes from interviews with Tomino about it, and from other works of his and other interviews by him, and they and I have come to the conclusion that, especially in the mid 1980s, Tomino himself did not know what autism was. <laughs> He definitely conflated it with depression, with being a shut-in, with. All kinds of affective disorders and attachment disorders. Like he uses the term a lot, and he doesn't know what it means. <laughs>、uh, he seems to love the word. He uses it to describe himself, anime fans generally,、oh、all kinds、God. of different things. Oh, that's so bad. Oh, yeah. Tell me no, no. I think he just doesn't know what it really means. And so Camille's use of it here seems to be very consistent with Tomino's use of it generally. It's very interesting reading about. Common misconceptions. One of the things they brought up is that、uh, on the Asperger side, due to the combination of academic ability and social withdrawal or awkwardness, there were a lot of people who thought Asperger's was caused by parents who were too strict about academics and not social enough with their children.、Uh, on the complete other side, <laughs> there was a work released in 1986 called Mazakom Shonen no Matsuo, or Fate of a Young Man with a Mother Complex. Hmm. Which suggested that autism and refusal to attend school—these are being lumped together because I guess they're the same. They were in the mind of this writer,、uh, but that this was caused by mothers who were too nice, which caused their children to lose any desire for independence or self-reliance. So it sounds like, as a mother, you just can't win. Correct. Either you're too <laughs> cold or you're too nice. You're gonna ruin your kids. Either, either way, way, your kid's gonna get autism. Um, Which is a thing you contract, yes, due to mothers. The book was also protested and taken out of print because of its irresponsible portrayal.、Uh, but similar issues have cropped up in music, in manga. The term gets misused and conflated with other medical and mental health issues very frequently. It's a good thing that's an exclusively Japanese problem that we don't have here in the English-speaking world, right? Anyway. <laughs> Speaking of the English-speaking world, that idea that autism is caused by excessively cold and detached mothers in English was called the refrigerator mother hypothesis, 
Wow. <laughs> and one of its primary proponents was a guy named Bruno Bettelheim, who was just a real piece of work. Well, didn't you say he lied about all his credentials and all yes. his research? Yes, he did. And abused his patients. Ah. And, yeah. Well, and most of his work curing autism, I hope you can hear the finger quotes I put around that, was on patients who weren't actually autistic, mm. probably. But the various foundations were willing to pay for autism research because that was the cool, hot topic. And so he just lied and said that they were autistic and then cured them of the autism they didn't have. It seems pretty clear that this line in the anime is from a very uninformed <laughs> position. But the actual research community in Japan in the mid to late 80s was focused mostly on epidemiology and outcomes. The published rates are sort of all over the place, but they did seem to see higher rates earlier than a lot of the rest of the world probably due to changes in awareness and diagnostic criteria, but also because they had very high rates of adoption of early childhood medical screenings. Uh, they would do these at, I want to say it was like three months, 18 months. There was a possible follow-up one if there was anything concerning at the 18 months, and then at age five before entry into school. And after any of these checkups, if anything looked off, you would immediately get referred for whatever sort of therapies might be beneficial, even if they couldn't give you an official diagnosis of anything. If there was a concern, they routed you to therapies. And the checkup at five years old specifically addressed various school preparedness things and, and possible educational concerns. Uh, one of the things scientists at the time noticed is they found a lot of clustering by birth month and year, which is to say, uh, rates of autism, if you organized all these kids by birth year and birth month, were not the same year to year or month to month. Certain years seem to have higher rates and certain months seem to have higher rates. And so they were looking for possible links to bronchitis or pneumonia, the possible exposure of pregnant women to these things might contribute to autism. They also looked into environmental factors because they found certain geographic areas seemed to have a higher incidence than others. So the, the medical community in Japan <laughs> was very much on top of you know, what we think of as the scientific best practice, but the public perception was completely different and very skewed and harmful. But we can say that the public at large was very aware of autism, even if they were ill-informed about it, and very interested in it. So it was very much in the cultural milieu when Camille is making this comment in Zeta. And it probably wouldn't have seemed weird to the audience at the time, because they would have heard him describing himself as an autistic child, and they would have conflated it with those ideas about like self-obsession and failure to connect with the larger world and apathy about things around you and refusal to do your duty and becoming a shut-in, all of those things would have gotten mixed together and people would have gone, oh yeah, that's Camille. His, his lack of understanding of unspoken social rules would have been a big one. <laughs> and that actually is maybe the biggest one for this scene because he's just had that scene with Wong Lee where if he had just shut up, Right. All Wong wants him to do is be quiet. Say he's sorry. Say he's sorry and swallow his pride. 
And Camille just refuses to do it. And maybe he can't even tell that he's supposed to. Yeah. I suppose I find myself wondering in that scene when Camille says it, is he trying to explain the way that he is? Does he actually think that he is quote unquote autistic, whatever he means by that? Or is he making excuses and trying to find an out <laughs> of this situation? <laughs> I don't know. To Tomino and Camille, I think Emma's response is very appropriate. Don't just classify people according to your own opinions, according to what's convenient for you. Next time on episode 2.11, Under Pressure, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 10 and some deja vu. Guilt by association. White bases are Quattro's trigger. Mara size, Nemo's flying armor, oh my! The carrot part. Chibi Mobidu. Some war crimes. Lead us not into temptation. A new challenger appears. And shaking hands with the devil. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling just anything that's ever been said on Reddit about this episode on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. wouldn't want a warm one. I might. A one that is warm is barely a one at all. <laughs> we better be careful. Strong, strong man will come after us for stealing all this material. <laughs> um, I would like to believe that maybe not strong bad, but somebody over there would appreciate what we do. I feel like strong yeah, sad. Strong sad has probably watched a lot of like, anime. <laughs> classic anime. Yeah, probably. That sounds like strong sad. I was holding it together until you said the Wibblies. <laughs>
Discipline and Punish is a book by Michel Foucault. It's one of his most famous. It's one I had to read in college. And uh, fundamentally about systems of punishment and control. It's Foucault, so it's really hard to explain exactly what he's talking about. Okay. He would probably think this whole thing that we're doing is super ridiculous. (laughs) Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody spend so much time on old Gundam? (laughs) That thing I made that I hate. He hates all the things that he's made. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, imagine if you went back and listened to our first episodes. Which I will never do. You can't make me. (laughs) What if someday our podcasting is so famous that there is a traveling museum exhibition about it and some of our very first episodes are featured in the museum and then you have to go and listen to them and watch a bunch of other people listening to them. You're contriving a lot of very unlikely scenarios that would make me (laughs) listen to those episodes again. I'm just saying that's a thing that happened to Tomino a month ago. And I'm sure he hated it. He did. He gave interviews about it. I'm really unhappy that I have to be here. And everyone claps and is like, yes, we know. (laughs) And we love it. I just thought it was a goofy golden mobile suit. (sighs) Okay. Man, this show. All right. Now we are both going to remember, we're feeling some feels. Yep. Both of our feelings are valid. Both of our interpretations are valid. If we need to, we're going to take breaks. Yep. If you feel like you can't say anything, just like raise a hand. And this show. (laughs) Good emotion, fun emotion makes the podcast better. Not bad emotion, sad emotion, lock it away forever. Chibi Mobiru.